0: Lovely to see so many people here, especially on an afternoon like this, so thank you very much for coming. Um, and thank you for Kings for even thinking of next steps after 30 years, which seems to me an extraordinary length of time. Um, what I'm going to do this, this afternoon is talk really talk through the process of getting from start, to when the Next Steps report was implemented, because that process I think was fairly unusual um, and involved a very large number of people um, and some quite interesting incidents along the way. But it, a lot of it explains why the report and its outcome was as it was. Um, it was very much different from the normal run of Whitehall reports on internal organisation. It was very short, it was blunt about the issues that needed attention and the authors, who were a small group of relatively young civil servants in the Cabinet Office, were under no illusions about the serious implications of their recommendations. I'm going to cover briefly the political background in the 1970s, explain the origins of the review, and why it was suggested, how it was done, the outcome, and the task of persuading the government, both politicians and civil servants, that the recommendations and conclusions were right and would work in practice. The 1970s had been a difficult decade on any showing, and as there are a few here who I probably can't remember it, I should point out that at the start, there were serious industrial disputes raging for several, several months. The IMF had been called in by a desperate and embarrassed Treasury. Public expenditure appeared to be out of control. There was widespread and damaging strikes, particularly by public sector workers, both before and during the 1979 election. Uh, The new government, headed by Mrs. Thatcher, faced the same problems as their predecessors, and they also faced a deeply suspicious civil service. The civil service in 1979 was some 600,000 strong, tightly controlled from the centre by the Treasury and the Civil Service Department. Earlier changes had done little to alter the culture and working habits of many civil servants. The opening words of the Fulton Report, which Kath referred to, which came out in 1968, were rather darkly, the home civil service today is still fundamentally the product of the Northcote Trevelyan Report. Some of the culture of the 1860s had survived even that intervening decade, and explains quite a lot of our report. Mrs Thatcher and many of her colleagues were convinced that one of their major problems was the way the public sector was run. The politician's view was that the civil service in particular was incompetent, inefficient, and outdated, and that money and opportunities were being wasted. Like many of her predecessors, Mrs. Thatcher thought that an outsider, a businessman, could help. So in 1979, she appointed a personal advisor on efficiency, Derek Rayner from Marks & Spencers. That was the real heyday of Marks & Spencers then. And it was a public indication of her reluctance to trust the civil service. He created a small unit in the Cabinet Office and set it to work to find out where the inefficiencies were. Rayner proposed a system which became known as scrutinies, a short review of a problem area with recommendations based on hard evidence and cost. The scrutiny teams were told to go and find out what was happening. They were not allowed to sit in the office and read the papers, which was the traditional Whitehall approach to these things. Scrutinies were done by junior staff from the department concerned with help from the unit. This became the scrutiny program and in the first eight years of the unit's life it oversaw about 300 scrutinies and according to the National Audit Office's report had established savings of 1.4 billion. Peter Hennessy rather helpfully points out that in uh, the early 1980s that amounted to the cost of the M25 which was much more than we had thought at the time. The Rainer Unit became the Prime Minister's Efficiency Unit in 1983 when Robin Ibs, who was then Deputy Chairman of ICI, was Mrs. Thatcher's next choice for a sane businessman to come in and sort out the civil service. The Conservative government were also very clear that there was a problem about management in Whitehall. The six, they, there were a number of successful initiatives which start, were started really quite quickly. One of the initiatives which was perhaps regarded as less successful by the civil service was an immediate cut of 10% from all the costs of the civil service. And I always thought at the time that the civil service made that too easy because really I would have expected the complaints to be far more than there were. 10% off everything. A very successful financial management initiative was introduced, run by a small unit whose responsibility was to support the development of financial information in Whitehall, which sounds extremely dry and dusty, but when you don't know what anything costs, it's really very difficult to take sensible decisions about what you're doing. Um, Work was starting on budgeting systems, notably in the Department of the Environment. Michael Heseltine had demonstrated how difficult and necessary it was to produce management information, but his MINIS system was so large it had to be um, taken round the department on a trolley, which made it less useful for immediate uses. But in most departments there was simply not enough enthusiasm or information, especially about detailed expenditure, to manage or plan effectively. A lot of departments, however, took the idea of having management information very seriously. I can remember sitting at a meeting in the Department of Employment, which needed management information, and the very nice permanent secretary picked up the beautifully bound and expensively published book on management information and flipped through it and said, good heavens, I had no idea we did all these things. And I can remember as a relative junior sitting there thinking, something's something's wrong here. He really ought to know. So in 1986, and I'd taken over as Director of the Efficiency Unit in 1985 or 6, I think, um, sent a note to the Prime Minister's private secretary suggesting that the unit should do a short scrutiny to establish what the obstacles were to better and faster progress with management reform, was how we rather pompously put it, which would produce a report for the Prime Minister. The report was rapid and quite unambiguous. We were instructed firmly to assess progress in improving management in the civil service, to identify what changes had been successful, to identify what the institutional, administrative, political, and attitudinal obstacles were to better management that still remain, and to report to the Prime Minister on what further measures should be taken. It sounded quite intimidating to us. I don't think we'd really expected anything quite as draconious as this, but it was very clear what she wanted, and this would form the basis of our review. The first thing we had to do was decide how to do it. We planned our approach carefully and amongst ourselves and then discussed our ideas with Robert Armstrong and Robin Ibs who was then the Prime Minister's advisor on efficiency. We agreed that we would use the scrutiny process the unit had developed over several years, now a systematic approach to investigated problems using the views and experience of the people directly concerned and directly involved in the work. We circulated a study plan before our meeting so people knew what the issues we were looking at and with whom we would be talking. Our evidence, unusually, quite unusually for this kind of thing, would be collected from civil servants at work. We would meet people doing their jobs. This would mean, as far as possible, to meet and listen to the views of a cross-section of the whole civil service, in Whitehall, in all parts of the country, at all levels, we would also talk to people who had left the civil service. As part of this process, we agreed that I would discuss the issues with all members of the cabinet and all permanent secretaries. And the deputy director of the unit, Karen Keynes, would discuss the same issues with as many of the senior staff as possible. We also had advice, very informally indeed, from a small and informal group of permanent secretaries who never came out from behind the curtains. I don't think anybody ever knew who they were. The three members of the t- main team my, were myself, Karen Keynes, who's here at the front, and Andrew Jackson, who were all professional civil servants. Another three members of the unit staff joined the fieldwork, one from IBM, one from the Ministry of Defence, and one from the Government of Australia. Extremely important that we had a good mix there. Another, together we held about 300 meetings all over the country. Our record keeping had to be systematic and extensive. And we had three months to complete our investigation. We started in early October and completed the research stage by December 1987. We didn't see very much of our families in those th- three months. But we met in January 1987 in a dark gray room on a miserable day in January, which I've never forgotten, to review the, report, the results of our research. The outcome was both compelling and dismaying. We had heard similar views and experiences wherever we went, and they were very far from reassuring. We had both heard and seen that the activities carried out by the civil service were far too large and too diverse to be managed successfully as they were in a single unified operation. The substantial inefficiencies we saw imposed by a uniform system vastly outweighed its benefits. There was a similar message from the staff wherever we went, They welcomed management delegation, such as there was, but would like to see far more. They knew that senior officials were mainly concerned with policy, and that policy rather than management was the route to the top. This is a very important image that a lot of the staff had, which was basically because they were running the large organisations, they weren't important. They weren't part of the golden group at the top. They were also prevented from doing sensible and necessary things by central rules written in head office. Painting the office, buying cheap paper, introducing modest computerization. They could see where things could be done better, but there was little or no support for changes, even where they made sense. I can remember giving a talk at the Ministry of Defense, where there was um, a woman chemist who stood up and said, this really had got to stop, she said in tight tones. I've been working in this place for a long time, and I feel as though I'm working with a bag of cement on my head. Nothing ever changes. And I thought, that is an image which will stay with me for a very long time, and it has done. My discussions with permanent secretaries and ministers were also illuminating. Many said, and they were remarkably (coughs) frank about all this, that they simply lacked the skills to be involved in the management of their organizations. Their expertise was in policy, politics, and the systems of Whitehall. In some major departments, neither Secretary of State nor Permanent Secretary, with whom I had separate meetings, could tell me which of them was responsible for the management of the department. I remember coming out of one place and thinking, what on earth is going on? One of them said quite openly, oh, quite honestly, I leave all that to someone else. I really don't understand it at all. Or one minister said, it's his job, but he hasn't a clue, so I do have to step in from time to time. And finally, one of them said, actually, I don't think either of us really knows what it's all about. Well, you really did have to stop and think quite seriously about what... How was how, how the place run? It was very, very difficult. Ministers also complained, rightly, that they were seriously overloaded with expenditure policy and managerial issues. The departments demanded decisions from them on detailed topics about which they knew they didn't know enough to make sensible decisions. And many of them complained that delegation was weak, and disorganized and that was the result of them get the consequence of that was they were getting all these unnecessary things to do it would be a motorway costing one day one of them said and you can guess from where and moving a level crossing the next it was quite absurd at all these senior levels we could find very few people thinking about the possibility of improvements in performance their time and their energy was used up in dealing with the pressure of day-to-day political and policy issues well, um, we felt that there were some fairly blunt issues from our findings. Before I go on to them, I bet some. on I'm sorry. Um, there was little clear and accountable responsibility for the management at the top of departments. Straightforward. The uniformed civil service was a handicap and not a benefit. There was little clarity about the results expected from people or organisations and there was very little attention given to outputs or improvements in performance. We had to test what we'd found. We spent a further two months discussing our findings with many of the people that we had talked to in the first place. Very few disagreed with our conclusions, although some were understandably cautious about the implications of them. One of them, across his bicycle, said, Don't be too radical, Kate. They'll never let you get away with it never found out who you was in that conversation and another said yes well i agree with you that this needs doing but you can't do anything like that it simply wouldn't happen that was a very senior permanent secretary with an even larger department having got that clear we then moved to report drafting which was done over a period of about six months six weeks with the um senior team who were involved with us, and with a great deal of help from the Secretary of the Cabinet and Robin Ibs, the Prime Minister's advisor. The main recommendation which emerged from long discussions and redrafting was that the government's executive activities, which employed some 90% of the civil service, should be established in distinct and separate agencies, which we spelt with a small lowercase a, not a large one, which became significant. Separate agencies defined by their function and governed by a formal management agreement with the responsible department. This gets a bit technical at the moment and I apologise but we need to go through it. The agreement should specify the framework within which the agency would operate with objectives, budgets, policy targets and defined results which were unusual across large areas of civil service. The structure should be designed for the agency to carry out its main task. The agreement should allow the department to leave the agency as free as possible to manage, but within the framework. That was the first recommendation. The second recommendation was that the senior civil service should have to develop the skills to be explicit about the outcomes that they wanted, and to understand the operational consequences of the tasks they were giving the management of their agencies. Achieving the agreed outcome would be the responsibility of the chief executive of the agency. The main strategic direction was the responsibility of the minister and his permanent secretary, his. The detail of the relationship between department and agency would vary with the job to be done and the service to be delivered. This shared responsibility for the management of outcomes would only be effective if the departments and agencies took the need for properly trained and experienced staff seriously. Senior staff must have experience of both management and policy work. The third section of the report dealt with implementation. The report argued that the Prime Minister and the Head of the Civil Service should have the responsibility for setting the management strategy for the Civil Service and for demanding improvements in performance. A senior project manager, who was to be a permanent secretary, should be responsible for the implementation of the report and report directly to the Head of the Civil Service and the Prime Minister. Some of those recommendations were unusual. I don't think I've ever seen a report before which suggested that a prime minister and the head of the civil service should get closely involved in the management of the civil service. Um, It was rather like the occasion when we suggested that Robert Armstrong, as um, head of the civil service, should be called the action manager for this report. He muttered and muttered away for some time about that. I don't think he was at all convinced that that was what he had to do. We were then moving in to the stage of discussion and agreement of the report. And I will come on to why it was drafted as it was and structured as it was, because that was all part of making sure this would actually happen. We had a confidential draft report to the the Prime Minister in March 1987. She agreed the recommendations, but warned very firmly that there would be difficult discussions ahead. There was a general election in June 1987 But we knew that the opposition made helpful noises about reforms in slightly wary meetings, but we knew that if there was a change of government, the report would probably be lost or changed out of all recognition. But the government won, and the process of handling the report continued extremely rapidly. And A minute came out from the Prime Minister's office within about two weeks of the election result being announced. I did a further round of permanent secretaries and some ministers to explain where we were and confidential numbered copies of the report were circulated. I thought they were beginning to get a little fed up with seeing me turning up with yet more bad news, but they were very patient. There was an informal cabinet meeting in June to discuss the report at which almost all ministers agreed with the report except the Treasury, who were not convinced. I'm not sure that they all understood what it was about, even though Robin Ibs had broken with convention and given a short short talk with with slides um, in order to make sure they understood what the word management meant. Um, One of the things that happened, apart from the encouraging noises, was the Prime Minister insisted on going round the table and asking each of them what their view was personally. And she'd gone round most of the table and she rounded on the far corner and said, Willie, what do you think? And the Lord President of the Council, Lord Whitelaw, woke up, I think, slightly, and said, oh, it's absolutely excellent report, excellent report. All, of, all the right things being said. Of course, I think we should implement it. I think we should implement it rapidly. And then he sank back in his chair and turned to the person sitting next to him and said in a very loud whisper, I think that's what that young woman told me to say, <laughs> leaving me wondering which way to turn next. Um, The discussions of the report at the Permanent Secretaries' Wednesday morning meetings were more detailed and continued throughout the year. Almost all Permanent Secretaries were in broad agreement with the report, with reservations inevitably about some of the detail. The Treasury remained unconvinced. The Prime Minister understood what we were doing, and she quite rightly would not support us openly um, until both the Cabinet and the Permanent Secretaries had all agreed, but she knew exactly what we were aiming for the Treasury were still not persuaded. Their view was that the agencies would establish a system through their framework agreements which would fatally damage the process for public expenditure. They would not accept our proposition that in taking part in the development of the agencies and the framework agreements, they would be in a position to see that money was properly allocated against agreed outcomes. They would get better value for money from expenditure and they would have more detailed information on the results they would also know a good deal more of what was going on in departments. The Treasury's opposition was a continuous thread running through that year. It was a view held so strongly that a meeting with a Treasury Permanent Secretary, who I'd known for a very long time and whose views I valued, asked me in angry tones, do you realise what your next steps would impose on the Treasury? And I said, no. <laughs> Where am I? It would impose on us the need to go to Parliament for a revision of the original Treasury Commission of 1667. We would no longer be able to conform with Parliament's wishes on the control of expenditure. And I thought, I, I just simply couldn't believe my ears. I did a little bit of research subsequently and thought, no, 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 it really isn't as bad as that, but it was quite intimidating at the time. And he was clearly, genuinely, and deeply concerned. We had a further five months then of meetings between June and October. The cabinet, and I'm not quite sure who it was, but the cabinet had suggested that our ideas should be tested before they came to a final decision. Fine. Several departments were eager to pay- take part, and we set up 12 possible agencies to be pilot studies of how, our, how the um, process of setting up a framework agreement and the relationships within the departments would actually work. The pilots ranged from, some of them were really rather brave, I thought, at the time. The nationwide network of the employment service, which employed 35,000 staff. The teachers' pension organisation with 400 staff and a very, very difficult group of customers, as you can imagine. And the very smallest, which was the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre. So we got a good span across there. The aim was to see what would be involved in developing a workable framework agreement in each of the 12 cases. Meetings were constructive and went really quite quickly. The department's teams and the Treasury met at the Efficiency Unit and we discussed the structure of each agency and the content of a draft agreement and the timing which they would work to. But after three months, the Treasury representatives were told to withdraw from our meetings. It was a loss for all concerned. We missed the good sense of the Treasury Expenditure Divisions and they missed the opportunity to see how the recommendations would work in practice. And we were very disappointed, but it was a very firm injunction. The opposition of the Treasury was a constant difficulty for us, but we gained from it, however frustrating it was. In discussion, they made useful points, and their negative view encouraged us to test our assumptions over and over again and feel reasonably secure in what we were proposing. They missed an opportunity, which was a quite serious one, to improve their working relationships with departments. Their approach to public expenditure in the Treasury was far more sensible than departments gave them credit for. But what was faulty was their communication system with departments. Um, And we were constantly saying uh, in the meetings on the pilot agencies, departments say we can't do that, the Treasury say we can't. And the Treasury would say, yes, you can. We've always been saying you can't. And you'd think, again, we need to get this sorted out because it shouldn't be like this. In the efficiency unit, it was also important that we kept in touch with what was happening in Whitehall. And there was quite a lot of, an organisation like Whitehall, there was quite a lot of gossip and quite a lot of storytelling going on all over the place. The regular meetings of senior officials were used by the central departments to communicate what was going on. We attended wherever possible because it was important that we should know what was being said. We had friends who were at the meetings and who relayed the results to us. The um, message to the regular meetings of deputy secretaries and the heads of finance and personnel, those meetings were run by the Treasury, were, don't worry about that report, it's not going to happen, it's not going anywhere. So we received that information with interest. There was a different atmosphere at the meetings of permanent secretaries on Wednesday morning. There, support for the report and its recommendations became remarkably warm and helpful except, I'm afraid, from the Treasury, who said they were prepared to do anything as long as Robert Armstrong didn't send me to talk to them about it ever again. So it was fine, that was a price worth paying. Uh, things, so, things just sort of moved along. We got the pilot studies done and people began to talk about what the implications of the report might be. Nobody other than permanent secretaries and ministers had seen the copies of reports at this stage. In early October 1987, which was about a year since we'd begun work, it was announced at the Wednesday morning meeting that ministers were to meet on the 22nd of October to decide whether to accept the report. The pilot studies had been completed and would be available for the meeting. At this point in the meeting, one permanent secretary, and by no means the most radical, said firmly and very uncharacteristically, ministers can decide what they like at that meeting, My agency is ready and is being established formally on the 26th of October. And it was. I can remember just thinking, this is not what I expected to happen. It was a very interesting indication of how enthusiastic parts of the um, civil service were to get moving. Effectively, as ministers agreed, next steps had moved smoothly, almost without a formal decision, from pilot agencies to implementation. The ministerial meeting had delegated any remaining details to discussions between the Cabinet Office and the Treasury. So a further three months were spent in discussions between the Cabinet Office and the Treasury, then the two main central departments. The arguments were arcane, arcane and often rather petulant. They dealt, amongst other things, with the powers of the chief executives, which was seen to be a potential threat, the role of the accounting officer, was defi- which was definitely unconstitutional, and the grading of the project manager, which was far too high. But I must say that at this point, throughout this lengthy process in 1987, one person kept the whole process m- progress moving. The efficiency unit had done the research and put together the results and the report, but it was Robert Armstrong's support which ensured success. His advice to the unit was invaluable throughout. He kept the Prime Minister informed. She continued to support the report in the face of pressure from the Treasury and from her own staff. He chaired the crucial meetings with permanent secretaries, which sometimes became quite tricky, and and he assured the Prime Minister that the proposals in the report were essential for modernizing the civil service. He did that in a minute he sent to the Prime Minister on his very last day in office at the end of 1987 and he passed his responsibility on to his successor, Robin Butler. But I think without Robert Armstrong, next steps simply would not have happened. We would have slipped at one of these many potential problems along the way. Finally, in February 1988, the Prime Minister made a formal statement to the House of Commons, announcing the government's acceptance of the Efficiency Unit Report and its immediate publication and implementation there'd been arguments about the placing of commas in the Prime Minister's statement which raged all morning before she managed to stand up in the house and get it out. It also emerged the most extraordinary press excitement. I was firmly and formally instructed not to talk to the press and to refuse all requests for interviews. No problem for me. But the Treasury or someone talked and someone spread absurd and inaccurate stories which raced around the media. So for A couple of weeks, the Times, The Guardian and others had been reporting highly-coloured claims of rows and battles between the Cabinet Office and the Treasury, with smoke pouring out of Whitehall's windows. We had a lovely time reading the papers. They claimed the efficiency unit was upset, hysterical, I think one of them said, I can't think where they got that from, and furious, but the Treasury was winning. They then reported that the Treasury had won the battle, that the report had been watered down and completely redrafted, and the Prime Minister's statement had been altered. Even when they had the report and came to a press conference, and we assured them that it hadn't been report, they refused to believe us. No one admitted to leaking misleading stories, and we just read the papers. Particularly because there was not one word of truth in any of it. There wasn't even a seed out of which it could have grown. I had and still have the first confidential report to the Prime Minister, word for word, the published version which appeared um, Sorry, word for word the published version which appeared a year later and her statement as drafted and given to the House of Commons. So the um, noise slowly died down but it still bobs up. I still occasionally get PhD students turn up and say but how did you deal with the Treasury? (laughs) It was terrible and one, one has to deal with that but it stuck very, very, very firmly. Paul Peter Hennessy and his magisterial book on Whitehall came out just as all this was blowing up. And he very kindly put an extremely nice two page disclaimer in the next version, so it's worth reading the second the second version, not the first. So statement out, report accepted, even the publishers were happy. HMSO came to see us. It's a bit short, said the expert from the printers, flipping over the pages in front of us. Can't you make it a bit longer? But HMSO sold more copies of the Next Steps report that year than any other publication, apart from the Highway Code. They were terribly proud of it. They kept telling us how many they were selling. So now we reached the process of implementation, which was all ready to go. Implementation unit was set up, a new permanent secretary, Peter Kemp, in charge, carefully and deliberately chosen by the Cabinet Office from the Treasury the unusual structure of responsibility and reporting to the head of the civil service and the prime minister was in place. We had deliberately devised as tight an implementation system as we could. The simple structure of three recommendations made it easy to remember what the report was about. Very senior involvement gave the process additional impetus. One One of the problems we always felt about the Fulton report, which I didn't read deliberately at the time but some of my colleagues did, Was it had 22 recommendations, and nobody could really remember which was the most important one. So we were going to have three. Um, The unit's view: speed was essential. Time would weaken both the enthusiasm and the priority that we generated. We wanted the idea and the structure we had recommended to really stick in people's minds. The unit's view was that now, with the next steps report published and the establishment of the implementation team, we'd done our job, and it was for the next for the Next Steps team to take over. We provided policy papers and the background to the report to the unit. We had regular discussions with Peter Kemp and his team while they were going through the process of setting themselves up. By that point, the main actors for our part of the story had had retired. Robert Armstrong at the end of 1987 and Robin Ibb shortly afterwards. The authors of the report left the civil service within the next year. Robin Butler took over to oversee the implementation phase organized by Peter Kemp. The next steps reported had a fairly tumultuous time, but it was as nothing to the implementation stage. Peter Kemp had the first round of agencies set up to a blaze of publicity. Ministers vied to make the announcements and to appear with the new agency teams, and his catchphrase was, agencies need tailor-made solutions. The Commons Public, Accounts, Public Administration Committee demanded an appearance and were faced not with a stumbling civil servant, but with Peter Kemp talking openly about what was happening, what his plans were, and at the pace at which things were going to move. He did create an atmosphere of success and excitement, which made even the doubters eager to join in. The pace of developing the new agencies was startling, particularly, I think, for us. We really did not expect it to move as quickly as this, and that was very good. Within 18 months of the Prime Minister's announcement, there were three operational agencies, 32 being planned, employing about 190,000 civil servants. That's a third of the total within 18 months. After five years, by 1993, some two-thirds of the civil service was organized in agencies. They had their own budgets, trading accounts, their own pay structures in most cases, they had a chief executive, framework agreement with their department and control over their staff and pay. It was not all plain sailing. There were inevitably snags and difficulties which had to be resolved without earlier experience to rely on But but it was quite remarkably rapid for so substantial a change and all credit to Peter and Robin Butler that they achieved that. Andrew asked me to comment on the longer-term relevance and the contemporary significance of the report. I think Richard can do that better than I can. (laughs) He was there. I was in South America, I think, most of the time. Um, But there are a few points which I would just like to comment on. First, we found what we had not realized, what an extraordinary range of organizations and people make up the civil service. No unified structure could work properly in that system. The principle of tailor-made solutions was extremely important. Secondly, much of the effectiveness of the report was a result of the time and effort we put into establishing what the fundamental problems were. I've seen too many hasty changes made on the basis either of personal experience and often from other organisations rather than solid evidence of what is happening. The culture of the civil service then was, and probably still is, a powerful pressure on how things happen. The unit team had the advantage of having both civil servants and private sector members, and our advisors who also came from a mix of backgrounds and experience. Being able to understand the culture, but not being bound by it, was an essential part of finding the right solution here. We wanted everyone involved to be able to remember what we said. And this is the three main recommendations in the report. Most people, we thought, could manage to remember three recommendations. And probably the most important thing of them all was making the implementation a part of the main report, so that it was an active stage of the process of the report itself and not simply a line at the end where it so often is. So that was how it it came about and who was involved in it. Thirty years on, well, I don't think labels matter a hoot. I think what does matter is what is happening now. And if if I were following my own particular bent, I would be saying, are services for the public who have to pay for all this getting better? As processes improve and unit costs fall with technology, is the benefit being reinvested in the right places? And is there a clear and defined link between policy and management? And I really would like to know what the answers to those are, because I'm not sure that I do. Thank you all very much indeed.